Chapter 8, Part 1 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer. Translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 8, Part 1 Strauss's First Life of Jesus. Bibliography. First edition, 1835 and 1836 two volumes, 1480 pages. The second edition was unaltered. Third edition, with alterations, 1838 through 1839. Fourth edition, agreeing with the first, 1840. Considered as a literary work, Strauss's first Life of Jesus is one of the most perfect things in the whole range of learned literature. In over 1400 pages, he has not a superfluous phrase. His analysis descends to the minutest details, but he does not lose his way among them. The style is simple and picturesque, sometimes ironical, but always dignified and distinguished. In regard to the application of the mythological explanation to Holy Scripture, Strauss points out that De Veta, Eichhorn, Gobbler, and others of his predecessors had long ago freely applied it to the Old Testament, and that various attempts had been made to portray the life of Jesus in accordance with the critical assumptions upon which his undertaking was based. He mentions especially Usteri as one who had helped to prepare the way for him. The distinction between Strauss and those who had preceded him upon this path consists only in this that prior to him the conception of myth was neither truly grasped nor consistently applied. Its application was confined to the account of Jesus coming into the world and of his departure from it, while the real kernel of the evangelical tradition, the sections from the baptism to the resurrection, was left outside the field of its application. Myth formed, to use Strauss's illustration, the lofty gateways at the entrance to and at the exit from the gospel history. Between these two lofty gateways lay the narrow and crooked streets of the naturalistic explanation. The principal obstacle, Strauss continues, which barred the way to a comprehensive application of myth, consisted in the supposition that two of our gospels, Matthew and John, were reports of eyewitnesses and a further difficulty was the offence caused by the word myth owing to its association with the heathen mythology but that any of our evangelists was an eye-witness or stood in such relations with eye-witnesses as to make the intrusion of myth unthinkable is a thesis where there is no extent evidence sufficient to prove even though the earthly life of the lord falls within historic times and even if only a generation be assumed to have elapsed between his death and the composition of the Gospels, such a period would be sufficient to allow the historical material to become intermixed with myth. No sooner is a great man dead than legend is busy with his life. Then, too, the offense of the word myth disappears for anyone who has gained an insight into the essential character of religious myth. It is nothing else than the clothing in historic form of religious ideas, shaped by the unconsciously inventive power of legend and embodied in a historic personality. Even on a priori grounds, 
we are almost compelled to assume that the historic Jesus will meet us in the garb of Old Testament messianic ideas and primitive Christian expectations. The main distinction between Strauss and his predecessors consisted in the fact that they asked themselves anxiously how much of the historical life of Jesus would remain as a foundation for religion if they dared to apply the conception of myth consistently, while for him this question had no terrors. He claims in his preface that he possessed one advantage over all the critical and learned theologians of his time, without which nothing can be accomplished in the domain of history. The inner emancipation of thought and feeling in regard to certain religious and dogmatic prepossessions which he had early attained as a result of his philosophic studies. Hegel's philosophy had set him free, giving him a clear conception of the relationship of idea and reality, leading him to a higher plane of Christological speculation, and opening his eyes to the mystic interpenetration of finitude and infinity, God and man. God-manhood, the highest idea conceived by human thought, is actually realized in the historic personality of Jesus. But while conventional thinking supposes that this phenomenal realization must be perfect, true thought, which has attained by genuine critical reasoning to a higher freedom, knows that no idea can realize itself perfectly on the historic plane, and that its truth does not depend on the proof of its having received perfect external representation but that its perfection comes about through that which the idea carries into history or through the way in which history is sublimated into idea for this reason it is in the last analysis indifferent to what extent god manhood has been realized in the person of jesus the important thing is that the idea is now alive in the common consciousness of those who have been prepared to receive it by its manifestation in sensible form and of whose thought and imagination that historical personality took such complete possession that for them the unity of godhood and manhood assumed in him enters into the common consciousness and the moments which constitute the outward course of his life reproduce themselves in them in a spiritual fashion a purely historical presentation of the life of jesus was in that first period wholly impossible. What was operative was a creative reminiscence acting under the impulse of the idea which the personality of Jesus had called to life among mankind. And this idea of God-manhood, the realization of which, in every personality, is the ultimate goal of humanity, is the eternal reality in the person of Jesus, which no criticism can destroy. However far criticism may go in proving the reaction of the idea upon the presentment of the historical course of the life of Jesus, the fact that Jesus represented that idea and called it to life among mankind is something real, something that no criticism can annul. It is alive thenceforward, to this day and forevermore. It is in this emancipation of spirit and in the consciousness that Jesus, as the creator of religion of humanity, is beyond the reach of criticism, that Strauss goes to work, and batters down the rubble, assured that his pick can make no impression on the stone. 
he sees evidence that the time has come for this undertaking in the condition of exhaustion which characterized contemporary theology the supernaturalistic explanation of the events of the life of jesus had been followed by the rationalistic the one making everything supernatural the other setting itself to make all the events intelligible as natural occurrences each had said all that it had to say from their opposition now arises a new solution the mythological interpretation this is a characteristic example of the hegelian method the synthesis of a thesis represented by the supernaturalistic explanation with an antithesis represented by the rationalistic interpretation strauss's life of jesus is therefore like schleiermacher's the product of antithetic conceptions but whereas in the latter the antitheses docetism and ebionism are simply limiting conceptions between which his view is statically suspended the synthesis with which strauss operates represents a composition of forces of which his view is the dynamic resultant the dialectic is in the one case descriptive in the other creative this hegelian dialectic determines the method of his work each incident of the life of jesus is considered separately first as supernaturally explained and then as rationalistically explained and the one explanation is refuted by the other says strauss in his preface quote, by this means the incidental advantage is secured that the work is fitted to serve as a repertory of the leading views and discussions of all parts of the gospel history Close quote. in every case the whole range of representative opinions is reviewed finally the forced interpretations necessitated by the naturalistic explanation of the narrative under discussion drives the reader back upon the supernaturalistic that had been recognized by hase and schleiermacher and they had felt themselves obliged to make a place for inexplicable supernatural elements alongside of the historic elements of the life of jesus contemporaneously there had sprung up in all directions new attempts to return by the aid of a mystical philosophy to the supernaturalistic point of view of our forefathers but in these strauss recognizes only the last desperate efforts to make the past present and to conceive the inconceivable and in direct opposition to the reactionary ineptitudes by means of which critical theology was endeavoring to work its way out of rationalism he sets up the hypothesis that these inexplicable elements are mythical in the stories prior to the baptism everything is myth the narratives are woven on the pattern of old testament prototypes with modifications due to messianic or messianically interpreted passages since jesus and the baptist came into contact with one another later it is felt necessary to represent their parents as having been connected the attempts to construct davidic genealogies for jesus shows us that there was a period in the formation of the gospel history during which the lord was simply regarded as the son of joseph and mary otherwise genealogical studies of this kind would not have been undertaken even in the story of the twelve-year-old jesus in the temple there is scarcely more than a trace of historical material in the narrative of the baptism 
we may take it as certainly unhistorical that the baptist received a revelation of the messianic dignity of jesus otherwise he could not later have come to doubt this whether his message to jesus is historical must be left an open question its possibility depends on whether the nature of his confinement admitted of such communication with the outer world might not a natural reluctance to allow the baptist to depart this life without at least a dawning recognition of the messiahship of jesus have here led to the insertion of a legendary trait into the tradition if so the historical residuum would be that jesus was for a time one of the adherents of the baptist and was baptized by him and that he soon afterwards appeared in galilee with the same message which john had proclaimed and even when he had outgrown his influence never ceased to hold john in high esteem as is shown by the eulogy which he pronounced upon him but if the baptism of john was a baptism of repentance with a view to him who was to come jesus cannot have held himself to be sinless when he submitted to it otherwise he should have to suppose that he did it merely for appearances sake whether it was in the moment of the baptism that the consciousness of his messiahship dawned upon him we cannot tell this only is certain that the conception of jesus as having been endowed with the spirit at his baptism was independent of and earlier than that other conception which held him to have been supernaturally born of the spirit we have therefore in the synoptists several different strata of legend and narrative which in some cases intersect and in some are superimposed one upon the other the story of the temptation is equally unsatisfactory whether it be interpreted as supernatural or as symbolic either of an inward struggle or of external events as for example in venturini's interpretation of it where the part of the tempter is played by a pharisee it is simply primitive christian legend woven together out of old testament suggestions the call of the first disciples cannot have happened as it is narrated without their having known anything of jesus beforehand the manner of the call is modeled upon the call of elisha by elijah the further legend attached to it peter's miraculous draught of fishes has arisen out of the saying about fishers of men and the same idea is reflected at a different angle of refraction in john chapter twenty one the mission of the seventy is unhistorical whether the cleansing of the temple is historical or whether it arose out of a messianic application of the text my house shall be called a house of prayer cannot be determined the difficulty of forming a clear idea of the circumstances is not easily to be removed how freely the historical material has been worked up is seen in the groups of stories which have grown out of a single incident as for example the anointing of jesus at bethany by an unknown woman out of which luke has made an anointing by a penitent sinner and john an anointing by mary of bethany as regards the healings some of them are certainly historical but not in the form in which tradition has preserved them the recognition of jesus as messiah by the demons immediately arouses suspicion it is doubtless rather to be ascribed to the tendency which grew up later to represent him as receiving in his messianic character 
homage even from the world of evil spirits than to any advantage in respect of clearness of insight which distinguished the mentally deranged in comparison with their contemporaries the cure of the demoniac in the synagogue at capernaum may well be historical but in other cases the procedure is so often raised in the region of the miraculous that a psychical influence of jesus upon the sufferer no longer suffices to explain it the creative activity of legend must have come in to confuse the account of what really happened one cure has sometimes given rise to three or four narratives sometimes we can still recognize the influences which have contributed to mould the story when for example the disciples are unable to heal the lunatic boy during jesus absence on the mount of transfiguration we are reminded of second kings chapter four where elisha's servant gehazi tries in vain to bring the dead boy to life by using the staff of the prophet the immediate healing of leprosy has its prototype in the story of naaman the syrian the story of the ten lepers shows so clearly a didactic tendency that its historical value is thereby rendered doubtful the cures of blindness all go back to the case of the blind man at jericho but who can say how far this is itself historical the cures of paralytics too belong rather to the equipment of the messiah than to history the cures through touching clothes and the healings at a distance have myth written on their foreheads the fact is the messiah must equal nay surpass the deeds of the prophets that is why raisings from the dead figure among his miracles the nature miracles over a collection of which strauss puts the heading sea stories and fish stories have a much larger admixture of the mythical his opponents took him severely to task for this irreverent superscription the repetition of the story of the feeding of the multitude arouses suspicion regarding the credibility of what is narrated and at once invalidates the hypothesis of the apostolic authority of the gospel of matthew moreover the incident was so naturally suggested by old testament examples that it would have been a miracle if such a story had not found its way into the life of jesus an explanation on the analogy of an expedited process of nature is here as in the case of the miracle at cana also to be absolutely rejected strauss allows it to be laughed out of court the cursing of the fig tree and its fulfillment go back in some way or other to a parable of jesus which was afterwards made into history more important than the miracles heretofore mentioned are those which have to do with jesus himself and mark the crises of his history the transfiguration had to find a place in the life of jesus because of the shining of moses countenance in dealing with the narratives of the resurrection it is evident that we must distinguish two different strata of legend an older one represented by matthew which knew only of appearances in galilee and a later in which the galilean appearances are excluded in favor of appearances in jerusalem in both cases however the narratives are mythical in any attempt to explain them we are forced in one horn of the dilemma or the other if the resurrection was real the death was not real and vice versa that the ascension is a myth is self-evident such and so radical 
are the results at which Strauss's criticism of the supernaturalistic and the rationalistic explanations of the life of Jesus ultimately arrives. In reading Strauss's discussions, one is not so much struck with their radical character because of the admirable dialectic skill with which he shows the total impossibility of any explanation which does not take account of myth. On the whole, the supernaturalistic explanation, which at least represents the plain sense of the narratives, comes off much better than the rationalistic, the artificiality of which is everywhere remorselessly exposed. The sections which we have summarized are far from having lost their significance at the present day. They marked out the ground which is now occupied by modern critical study, and they filled in the death certificates of a whole series of explanations which, at first sight, have all the air of being alive, but are not really so. If these continue to haunt present-day theology, it is only as ghosts, which can be put to flight by simply pronouncing the name of David Friedrich Strauss, and which would long ago have ceased to walk if the theologians who regard Strauss's book as obsolete would only take the trouble to read it. The results, so far considered, do not represent the elements of the life of Jesus which Strauss was prepared to accept as historical. He sought to make the boundaries of the mythical embrace the widest possible area, and it is clear that he extended them too far. For one thing, he overestimates the importance of the Old Testament motives in reference to the creative activity of the legend. He does not see that, while in many cases he has shown clearly enough the source of the form of the narrative in question, this does not suffice to explain its origin. Doubtless, there is mythical material in the story of the feeding of the multitude. But the existence of the story is not explained by referring to the manna in the desert or the miraculous feeding of a multitude by Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44. The story in the gospel has far too much individuality for that, and stands, moreover, in much too closely articulated and historical connection. It must have as its basis some historical fact. It is not a myth, though there is myth in it. Similarly with the account of the transfiguration. The substratum of historical fact in the life of Jesus is much more extensive than Strauss is prepared to admit. Sometimes he fails to see the foundations, because he proceeds like an explorer who, in working on the ruins of an Assyrian city, should cover up the most valuable evidence with the rubbish thrown out from another portion of the excavations. Again, he sometimes rules out statements by assuming their impossibility on purely dialectical grounds, or by playing off the narratives one against another. The Baptist's message to Jesus is a case in point. This is connected with the fact that he often fails to realize the strong confirmation which the narratives derive from their connection with the preceding and following context. That, however, was only to be expected. Whoever discovered a true principle without pressing its application too far. What really alarmed his contemporaries was not so much the comprehensive application of the mythical theory as the general mining and sapping operations which they were obliged to see brought to bear upon the Gospels. In section after section, 
Strauss cross-examines the reports on every point, down to the minutest detail, and then pronounces in what proportion an alloy of myth enters into each of them. In every case, the decision is unfavorable to the Gospel of John. Strauss was the first to take this view. It is true that, at the end of the 18th century, many doubts as to the authenticity of this gospel had been expressed, and Brett Schneider, the famous general superintendent at Gotha, who lived from 1776 to 1848, had made a tentative collection of them in his Probabilia. The essay made some stir at the time but Schleiermacher threw the aegis of his authority over the authenticity of the gospel, and it was the favorite gospel of the rationalists because it contained fewer miracles than the others. Brett Schneider himself declared that he had been brought to a better opinion through the controversy. After this episode, the Johannine question had been shelved for fifteen years. The excitement was, therefore, all the greater when Strauss reopened the discussion. He was opposing a dogma of critical theology, which, even at the present day, is wont to defend its dogmas with a tenacity beyond that of the church itself. The luminous haze of apparent circumstantiality which had hitherto prevented men from recognizing the true character of this gospel is completely dissipated. Strauss shows that the Johannine representation of the life of Jesus is dominated by a theory, and that its portraiture shows the further development of the tendencies which are perceptible even in the synoptists. He shows this, for example, in the case of the Johannine narrative of the baptism of Jesus, in which critics had hitherto seen the most credible account of what occurred, pointing out that it is just in this pseudo-simplicity that the process of bringing Jesus and the Baptist into the closest possible relations reaches its limit. Similarly, in regard to the call of the first disciples, it is, according to Strauss, a later postulate that they came from the Baptist's following and were brought by him to the Lord. Strauss does not scruple even to assert that John introduces imaginary characters. If this gospel relates fewer miracles, the miracles which it retains are proportionately greater. So great, indeed, that their absolutely miraculous character is beyond the shadow of doubt, and moreover, a moral or symbolical significance is added. Here, therefore, it is no longer the unconscious action of legend which selects, creates, or groups the incidents, but a clearly determined apologetic and dogmatic purpose. The question regarding the different representations of the locality and chronology of the life of Jesus had always been decided, prior to Strauss, in favor of the fourth gospel. De Vetta makes it an argument against the genuineness of Matthew's gospel that it mistakenly confines the ministry of Jesus to Galilee. Strauss refuses to decide the question by simply weighing the chronological and geographical statements one against the other lest he should be as one-sided in his own way as the defenders of the authenticity of the fourth gospel were in theirs. On this point, he contents himself with remarking that if Jesus had really taught in Jerusalem on several occasions, it is absolutely unintelligible how all knowledge of this could have so completely disappeared from the synoptic tradition. For his going up to the Passover at which he met his death 
is there represented as his sole journey to Jerusalem. On the other hand, it is quite conceivable that if Jesus had only once been in Jerusalem, there would be a tendency for legend gradually to make several journeys out of this one, on the natural assumption that he regularly went up to the feasts, and that he would proclaim his gospel not merely in the remote province, but also in the capital. End of chapter 8, part 1